And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review, ladies and gents. My name is Ryan Bailey, and joining me is someone who'd never wear a t-shirt featuring the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus while on the touchline. It's Taylor Rockwell. Taylor, how are you? <laughs> never say never, but yes, you are correct. Never. Well, yeah, I mean, are you wearing it right now? Because I know you do have one. <laughs> uh, just framed, and then I have my backups like uh, preserved in uh, in plastic wrap just in case. I, I don't wear them unless I absolutely have to. I don't like to kind of break the mint condition situation. So this is a reference to the Copa Libertadores final, which we're going mm. to talk about later. That T-shirt, which has been wearing by Coach Kuka, um, it just reminded me of Ricky Bobby and uh, him praying for the baby Jesus all the time. I thought it was wonderful. wonderful just stuff. been born, tuxedo T-shirt on, so we know he likes to party. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good one, right? Uh, I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey later, Taylor. But anyway, I would introduce our other host on the show today is someone who would never take more than two touches from a Jordan Shakiri cross. It's Graham Rutherford. Graham, how are you? I am good, Ryan, and that is correct about me. A correct, another correct assumption. You're on fire today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. I'm referencing there, of course, uh, the wonder goal that Liverpool scored uh, against West Ham at West Ham this weekend. What did you think of that one, Graham? For me, that was a goal of the season contender, potentially, for a bit of context. This was a West Ham corner cleared by Andy Robertson, I believe, a ball force of Trent Alexander. Alex, uh, uh, Trent, <laughs> TAA, let's call him that. He switches the ball diagonally uh, to, I think he's got two players free there. Jordan Shakiri takes a first touch, crosses it into Mosa last path beautifully takes it down with his right foot slots it home with his left foot goal of the season for me how did it feel for you felt good for me yeah great goal I think what makes it is the finish just I love those finishes that um it's all in one movement so as you say he takes it down with his with his right finishes with the left and and it's one of those finishes where you go yeah I definitely couldn't have done that <laughs> you know there's a lot of goals where you, where you think I, I I might have I might have been able to finish that one off that was one that I definitely would have wouldn't have been able to to do so yes certainly a contender for goal of the season. Mo Salah's got a nice touch, hasn't he? This isn't breaking news or anything, but no one talks about him like they talk about Thiago, where the ball sounds differently, or like he's being cupped with a <laughs> pair of silk-gloved hands or whatever people say about Thiago. But uh, very, very impressive stuff. And um, the press into the box during that goal, Taylor, did you see this where sort of Robertson and Henderson, Henderson playing a centre-back, was right there next to Salah as he took the shot. He's like, oh, you, you are playing a centre-back, but yes, this team does like to push up the field. They do. I mean, I'm still bitter that my introduction was about an airbrush t-shirt and Graham got a man who doesn't need a second touch when it comes to playing for <laughs> Liverpool. Uh, so that felt personally hurtful and attacking and that's fine. Uh, yeah, I think also this is sort of Liverpool maybe feeling like they've got the, the, the chances there. And it reminds me of like Sergio Ramos bombing forward for uh, Real Madrid at certain points. That was Liverpool. I feel like maybe you don't need to do that when you're up one nil, but still go for it. Why not get Jordan Henderson in there as well? Well, hang on. Let's let's step back here. Would you rather be sort of a Swiss Albanian 
nearly playing for Liverpool kind of player who you probably forgot about a few months ago? Or would you rather be a coach at the Copa Libertadores final in the Maracanã wearing the greatest t-shirt of all time? I think I did you a great service there, Frank. Uh, you did until you uh, informed me about some of uh, Kuka's problematic history, and I would say very problematic history. And on that mm. note, I really don't want anything to do with Kuka. So uh, once again, I will abstain from voting. <laughs> All right, and let's abstain. While we're talking about things we should abstain from, let's not talk about ASU Wimbledon, my team, this weekend. We didn't have a great I have so one. So many we... notes. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, well, let's do a, half, a, a, a neat half an hour, a tight half an hour on it then. Uh, we lost 2 0 to MK Dons, which isn't really a rivalry game as much as a game where neither team acknowledges the other's existence, particularly Wimbledon to the Milton Keynes team. That was uh, Wimbledon's ninth consecutive home defeat. Wimbledon are now in the relegation zone. They were before that game, to be fair. And they fired their manager as well. So uh, that's not a great weekend. If, if anyone had a bad weekend out there, put it in context there. My team, Wimbledon, didn't have a great one. And to top it off, I found out this morning that one of the managers being linked to the position is Joseph Barton. Football visionary. Oh, dear. <laughs> he's, he's something. He's something. I like is how we weren't going to talk about Wimbledon, and now here we are. Is the, is the MK Dons Wimbledon rivalry is that is that a precursor to what we're going to see in, in MLS with with Columbus and in Austin? Is that similar vibes there? I suppose it it has very similar energy. Yes, that's the best US to UK comparison I can think of. Certainly, uh, oh, that will be a cracking one. Mm, yes, <laughs> although I, I think is it is it less? I think there's slightly less hatred over here. Maybe does that sound fair, Taylor? I think just because like people don't necessarily begrudge Austin fans as much as the owner, whereas I feel like everything MK Dons from top down, you and most Wimbledon fans are not fans of. That said, I think Columbus fans will forever dislike Austin from top to bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely town, though. Good music scene. Hey. This is true. This is true. Is that so we're going to be talking about... Teams? <laughs> well, Milton Keynes has the Milton Keynes Bowl, of course, which does have some great concerts. I was about 10 years old when I, my mum and my brother and I drove up to Milton Keynes Bowl uh, to drop my, brother off, drop my brother off to see Guns N' Roses play. I think that was a Use Your Illusion tour. I'm showing my age now, but um, I didn't go because I was too young, but um, my brother did that. And then I went to see Green Day in 2005 at the Milton Keynes Bowl. The first and last times I will ever go to Milton Keynes, those two trips to the Milton Keynes Bowl, which is f fun fact. I don't know if you've been there before, Graham, but it's the Milton Keynes Bowl. It's this huge venue in the middle of Milton Keynes, which is a made up town of nonsense. But um, it's actually based on the Hollywood Bowl, the whole shape and the design of it. But it's in Milton Keynes, which is an awful hellhole. I actually, I actually snuck into the Hollywood Bowl um, about a decade ago and then got chased out by a security guard. And that is a 100% true story. <laughs> but uh, I can't imagine having been there in the glitz and glamour of the Hollywood Hills that, it, that would replicate well in Milton Keynes. When you say chase, do you mean like Benny Hill style with, a, you know, there was music and you were running up and down the aisles and stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, there was actually an orchestra practicing on the stage, so it would have been, you know, a good courtesy <laughs> if they had done the Benny Hill music as we were getting chased out of, of the Hollywood Bowl, yeah, but I feel like we've got, gone off on a tangent here. <laughs> Ever so slightly. Shall we bring it back? We're going to be talking about a couple of very big games from the weekend. Arsenal against Manchester United. Action-packed it was, and we're going to break that one down. We're also, as we mentioned, the Copa Libertadores final. Also action-packed in the first 90. We'll be discussing that one as well. And also, we're going to have a little chat about the transfer window, which comes to an end this very Monday. Before we get to that, though, gents, the biggest game of the weekend from the Dutch second tier. 
You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> Den Bosch and Excelsior. Den Bosch, 3-0 down to Excelsior in this game. They're struggling. It's a difficult time for them. Step up, Jizz Horncamp. Den Bosch's Jizz Horncamp scores four goals. The game finishes 4-4. Jizz made sure there were no clean sheets in this one. Wonderful, wonderful ex- exhibition of soccer this was in the Dutch second tier. And, you know, in the spirit of talking about transfers, Taylor, and Manchester United, we know they've made one, they've made one signing. I don't think Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is going to make any more on transfer deadline day as at the time of recording. If Jizz Horncamp was signed, Taylor, would you get so excited that you get Jizz on your Man United shirt? <laughs> I was wondering how it was going to go and what it was going to be. It does feel like a thing. I know you're asking jokingly. It does feel like a thing that could happen based on some of the signings they have made and how young they tend to be and how like kind of unknown. Like it's it's a little bit in the Bebe line, I guess. So yeah, <laughs> let's get Jizz in that team and see what happens. Graham, are you in the Horn Camp camp? Do you like Jizz? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do wonder if it's an untapped uh, source of... Uh, commercial revenue and you know like Minet have signed players from China and America based purely on how many shirts they would sell so on that basis why why wouldn't they sign Jez Horncamp um, who by the way as Wikipedia says is a forward and a right back so yeah. you know I mean if I, there's a Manchester United signing if ever there was one two problem areas in one <laughs> how dare you besmirch the great uh, historic name that is Dong Fang Zhu uh, and his one appearance for Manchester United? That's hurtful. That's hurtful, Graham. Well, I feel just, like Horncamp could be next to, in line. <laughs> it's just really good to see Jizz coming up in all areas. Do you oh, know what I mean? God. Just you know, right back and and up front there. You know, very versatile kind of player. I, I imagine being told that as a striker. We're, we're gonna we're gonna put you back at right back for this one. How do you feel about that? <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Dutch second division, ladies and gents, and Jizz Horncamp. I'm not tired of saying that name. Maybe I'll bring it up again in the next hour. But why don't we move on, guys, to Arsenal against Manchester United. This one finished double O's. I've just made that up. I don't know if that's an American saying or not, but here we go. This one I likened to Game of Thrones because... Uh, like Game of Thrones, it didn't know how to finish properly. Neither team Mm -hmm. could really finish in this one. Quite scrappy, quite tired. Uh, Two kind of exhausted teams, Graham. Do you you feel the uh, energy that I got from this one? I, I, I was actually quite frustrated watching this game because, you know, we only get one weekend every week and you only get a certain amount of hours to watch soccer. And I dedicated a good 90 to watching this. And I felt a little bit shortchanged by it. Graham, are you, are you with me on that one? Yeah, are you saying you watch you you dedicate ninety hours to watching this game because it only took me ninety minutes to watch this game, but uh, it felt like ninety hours. Yeah, yeah, felt a little bit that long, but yeah, it, it certainly didn't live up to the billing, did it? I mean, how how many Manchester United games have we spoke? Big Manchester United games have we spoken about recently in in those terms? Uh, they are the front line on paper. Obviously, their attack is that United's attack is their strongest area, but. It does feel like they are misfiring a, a little bit at the moment. Um, Anthony Marshall's not in good form at all. Marcus Rashford, um, he's not in bad form, but you could say he could do better, similar with Edison Cavani. And it just feels like that it's not really clicking for them at the moment. And I do wonder, coming into this season, I think we all felt it would be the defences that would struggle most with this this packed schedule. Um, and actually, I wonder if it's the other way. This is a trend we've seen with these big games this season where attacks have struggled we've seen a lot of goalless goalless draws this season between big teams and i, I actually yeah. wonder if it's the it's the, the attacks that are that are suffering for this uh this unique season this packed schedule 
Well, Graham, you, I saw you send a tweet along the lines of Man United probably won't win the title this season. And you mentioned there sort of they have had a lot of uh, goalless draws. I think in big against big six teams, they've had four nil-nil draws and two defeats. Surely you can't win a league title like that. And, you know, there is that old maxim that defences win championships, but this isn't quite the way, is it? No, and, and I think... I, I, that piece that I wrote, yeah, I, I did say Manchester United won't win the Premier League title this season. Um, I think some perspective is required. By every by every measure, they are progressing, they are getting better, they're closer to where they want to be. But I think this was a, this was a game that did prove why that why they're not really there yet. An opportunity away to Arsenal, who were without um, Aubameyang, Tierney, Saka as well, was missing. So this was a real opportunity against this Arsenal team, and it didn't truly feel like they went for it. At any stage, it felt like they were relatively content with the point. And I just think the way Manchester City are going now, when it feels like the second half of the season will be, um, there's going to be fewer points dropped, I feel like, in the second half of, of this season. And, and and yeah, the fact that Manchester City didn't go for it suggested to me that, that, that they've still to make that final step to be true contenders. Taylor, I saw you mulling on social this weekend as well about the sloppy and scrappy nature of this game and you know it's not the first time as Graham says that we've seen this from, from from Manchester United particularly do you have any thoughts on sort of the the, the wider issue here uh you know the, the players are looking quite tired and quite frustrated at times is this just a case of two great big six teams cancelling each other out being cautious yeah. in a big fixture or is there something a little bit more going on here something that's going to sort of drag on as this season goes on there's something hilarious to me about two of the big six teams. Like, like, like already, I feel like it's it's not being like one versus two, two of the most iconic teams that have both like not lost this whole season. It's like a struggling Arsenal team versus like an okay Man United team. And I think, like, yeah, well, hang think, on, they're not that struggling Arsenal at the moment, and Manchester United were, you know, online for the title not that long ago. According to some, I, I don't think <laughs> I was ever fully convinced that Man United were going to be challenging for the title, and this is an Arsenal team that, like. What, three weeks ago, it was still like, is Arteta the one who's going to solve this team? Is he going to bring it together? This was an Arsenal team who didn't have several key players for this game, and it did yeah. seem like it would be Manchester United's opportunity to go at them to try to make something happen. And as has sort of become tradition, you've talked about the lack of picking up points against the, the bigger teams. And then in this case, I think United now only scoring one goal in six games against Arsenal, Liverpool, City, Chelsea, and Tottenham combined. Wow. It's not great. It's not a lot of a lot of goals, and so I guess I go back to what Graham said that like they didn't really go for it, and I don't really know what that would look like with them because I I think they they put goal scorers on the field. I don't know if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer put them in positions to actually score goals or to score goals to the best of their ability, and I that that I think is a big part of the problem is sort of not quite knowing who fits where and how to get the best out of his attacking players. And I think that then connects to your original point, Ryan, of the fatigue factoring into it. I think Bruno Fernandes can say he's not tired, but to play every game all the time with the intensity he does, like his first touch in this game was maybe three or four yards away from him. I think his second one was yeah. out of bounds. And to me, mm. right there, that shows maybe they're not up for it. Maybe it just takes them some time to get going. Or in my mind, more likely is that maybe they're as up for it as they can be. But with the congestion there's been combined with the lack of attacking options United seem to have or don't have, as maybe is more accurate. I think you run into a lot of fatigue and it and it makes the legs a little bit heavier and it makes it harder to kind of react to things as instinctively as you might otherwise. 
Oh, he's talking about the legs getting a bit heavier. One of the uh, good descriptions I saw of Bruno this weekend is that he plays like he doesn't worry about the referee. Um, that was kind yeah. of true when we saw that incident that was much talked about when him raking his studs on Granite Xhaka. It's kind of an ugly side of his game, isn't it? It's a very Paul Scholes side of his game. It's as though he just watched Paul Scholes footage from Manchester United and was like, oh, I can just do what I want and murder people and I will maybe get a yellow card? Cool. And, he, and, and with that comes like Paul Scholes, despite being a non-smiling, uh, furrow-browed uh, grouch, like still had this, I think because of his size, like he was able to get away. I don't know why he was able to get away with it. It was just the thing of like, oh, there's a Scholes tackle, which meant someone's leg had been broken. And Bruno seems to have that as well, that to me, he's this like, beloved figure who creates like goal scoring chances and it's really fun to watch and i didn't realize until really was this game this weekend how much animosity there was towards him for incidents like the one you mentioned and then yeah. for kind of milking uh offenses to him i i didn't realize he had sort of become a villain in a lot of people's eyes though i think some of those moments maybe justified a little bit there was a story back in the day about paul skull sorry to interrupt graham there was a story about him warming up his car on his driveway uh, and going inside and, you know, leaving the engine running to, to warm it up. And someone stole the car. Can you imagine what, what a risky play that is? Paul Scholes, of all people. If he, if he catches you doing that, goodness me. I, I wouldn't want to be the person on the other end of that. Um, go, go on, Graham. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, Taylor, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to lose that side of his, his game, though. I mean, I know it's, I know it's such a cliche that I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to roll it out. But it feels like that fire is, is sort of linked to the way he he plays the game. And I think it's quite similar to the example I always use in, in, in this uh, regard is, is Wayne Rooney. You know, earlier in his career was told to calm down a lot and he did later in his career, but then somehow it felt like a little bit of that spark was was gone when he, when he wasn't arguing with the referee all the time or just yeah. getting away with, you know, missing out on red cards and things like that. It, it felt like a little bit of something had gone from his game. I feel like the two are linked with Bruno Fernandes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think maybe I said this poorly. What I mean, as naive as this sounds, is that, like, I think I had my head in the sand a little bit about Bruno and was seeing him mostly from a Man United fan perspective of he creates so many chances and he's so much fun to watch that I just assumed that everybody was on that page about, like, hey, we're all excited right. to watch Bruno, right? And that I wasn't really expecting the, like, typical Bruno, this is what he does, that he always gets away with this. And I was like, oh, Oh, you don't like him. Oh, I see what's happened here. Like I've I've misunderstood. But no, as I'm speaking as a Manchester United fan, I love everything he brings to that team. I love that fight. I sort of love that he gets annoyed when he doesn't play, even when he's tired, because I think that level of intensity and commitment has been lacking at times with Manchester United, and even this season has been lacking. And I think part of that is when he's as tired as he is, it's hard for him to sort of keep picking everybody up and keep doing all the things he did when he first came last January. Uh, but I still love everything he does bring into that team, and I think he's probably their most important player still. Why don't we check in um, on the Solskjaer genius ometer chaps? Uh, we had some <laughs> big changes here from the Sheffield United game. Cavani, Lindelof, Shaw, McTominay, and Fred all starting. McTominay, by the way, I, he, he looked like he had to nearly die before he got taken <laughs> off. I don't know what it took for him to... Uh, he looked like he wasn't feeling very well. I think he took a pill at some point. But poor, poor guy. I hope he's uh, f feeling better after that one. But um, some interesting, you know, wholesale, almost wholesale changes there from the previous uh, defeat. We had Pogba kind of out on a wing at one point. We had Rashford on that... Uh, uh, the opposite flank, the right flank, to where he's perceived to be uh, uh, better. And Graham, let's, maybe we should talk about Rashford because it seems like he's um, he, he's wasting a lot of chances at the moment. Maybe because he's not in his more you know on that left side linking up with Luke Shaw, where he, we've seen him be quite successful. 
it's, it seems like, you know, there was that point where, where was it? Around sort of half time where he didn't take the shot. He thought maybe an interception was coming in. He took too many touches when he was right in front of goal. Mm-hmm. Is it just Rashford's a bit out of form? Is it that he's out of position? Is this down to Solskjaer or is this down to, uh, down to Rashford? These are all big questions. What do you think? I, I think it's a, a lot of it is down to his, his position. I, I wish I could rem- remember. Sorry, there's just been so many games recently. There was a game. <laughs> there was a game recently where Rashford played on the on the left side, and and he looked a lot sharper and and mm. and it looked a lot better, a lot more comfortable. And and I just think I, I, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself because I, I feel like I've said this on the pod before. But that that right side for Manchester United is is such a problem for me. It it really makes them a lot easier to defend against because so much of their attacking play comes down the. The left side. I think whether it's a, a right winger or a right wing back, they need they need someone over there because I quite like Aaron Wan Bissaka. I think he's a very good defensive uh, minded fullback, but he's quite clearly uncomfortable on the overlap. His crossing's not particularly good. So Rashford would maybe get away with playing in that role where he cuts inside and he makes my United's play a little bit more congested in, in the middle if you had an overlapping uh, Alexander Arnold type fullback, you know, providing width, but wan Basaka, he, he is trying. Um, you know, he's trying to be that player. He's, he, he's just not. He's he's not comfortable in that way. So you either get a wing-back who can play that way or you you you, you play a, a natural right-winger. I thought it was quite interesting on, on Saturday that Ahmed Diallo, who you, you referenced earlier as my United's only signing of, of, of the January window, £37 million, pound, eight, 18-year-old winger from, from Atalanta, um, he scored twice in, in his first appearance for my United's under-23s against Liverpool. Solskjaer's been talking about him today, saying he, he expects to see him in a matchday squad pretty soon. Um, so that's maybe one to watch out. And it wouldn't surprise me if by the end of the season, Diallo is playing a lot of football for Manchester United simply because they don't have a player like him on, on the right side. And that's linked to Rashford's form. Taylor, do you see issues on the right side here? I'm just thinking, why, why put Rashford there when you do have someone like Greenwood to be further up the pitch in front of Wan-Bissaka? I thought actually had a fairly decent game here, pretty strong defensively at least. I mean, I, I think anytime you can beat Istanbul, Bashaksha here 4-1 to one with Rashford on the right, you got to do it every single game. And I think sure. that is maybe part of it, that he did look very good the first time it was tried. And after that, Solskjaer kind of persisted with it. But I think a lot of it is because that's probably the player he trusts the most, Solskjaer. So... I think he's more willing to move him around because Pogba on the right, Cavani, I think he hasn't tried there, but Martial on the right hasn't worked either. Danny James, I think, doesn't have the technical ability that Solskjaer wants for that position. And so I think it's to some extent the player that he just sort of has the most faith in to perform regardless of where he's put, he's putting in there. But then it almost connects in my mind to a situation like with Weston McKinney at Schalke, where if you're using a player to sort of plug holes wherever you need to, you're not putting them in the best situation. You're not letting them get the reps they need in one spot over the course of three or four games to get familiar, to get comfortable. And so to Graham's point, I think if you're moving somebody from left side to right side, now you're a center forward. Oh, no, you're going to finish out the half at left wing. Never mind, we need you on the right wing this time. You never really know exactly where you need to be at any given moment, and I think it really hurts your end product. Even mm. the the moment you mentioned where he just slows it down, I think that happened at least three times in this game. That there were, it felt like he could have just gone to goal and had a shot, or gone to goal and then laid it off for somebody else. And that indecision, it speaks to like it always sounds so weird to say, but it speaks to him having to think in the moment. He's not playing with instinct. He's not just sort of putting his head down and knowing I take a touch. I know exactly where the goal is in relation to me and where the goalie is and I can finish it here and put it in. It's a thing that Kareem Benzema does really well. He knows his angles. He knows his positions because he has so many reps there. If You don't get those reps. You just don't 
get that fluidity in what you're trying to do. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining why Rashford's productivity has gone downhill a bit. Indeed. And uh, I mean, slow or poor finishing was pretty characteristic of this game. Maybe we should talk about Edison Cavani. I was pleased to see him get a start. That's something I've sort of been personally campaigning for for a while, but obviously not quite clinical enough here. He finished with shots worth an XG of 1.11 here. I I died a little bit inside just by mentioning XG. I'm sorry about that. But uh, the point being that he... There were several times, I think Graham mentioned this on our group chat, who sort of threw his arms up in the air, looking a bit frustrated with his teammates. Uh, not not a happy bunny out there, Edison Cavani. Graham? No, and, and, and he did miss. A, the one, one chance in particular, um, Cross comes in from the left side. You see, it, it's, it's pretty much an open goal. He puts it wide and then mine it get a corner, which was the strange. Mm. It, it took me a few, like about at least 30 seconds to work out what had actually happened. But yeah, it seemed that he just actually missed... Uh, you know, got his angles wrong, and then obviously there, at, at late on, there's the um, the kind of volley on the stretch that he puts just just past the post, uh, past the post. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I'm full of the cliches today, but I guess it, I guess it's encouraging that he's he's getting the chances. Um, yeah. uh, you you probably think a striker of his ability will find his range, especially if, at the moment he's kind of been in and out of the team and maybe struggling a little bit for consistency but um, I still feel like he gives Manchester United a purpose that's a big thing about it with Martial I like Anthony Martial but it feels like he is uh, it feels like obviously they're pretty different players but it feels like he is uh, playing a Firmino role for Manchester United and that he's a facilitator for others so when you have Rashford and Fernandez and Greenwood not in form, and then obviously Martial's not really a goal scorer himself. I know he scored 20 goals last season, but tr- traditionally he's not a goal scorer himself. Then that's an issue for Manchester United, where Cavani is an apex and they play into him and, and he's he'll get on the end of chances. So I, I still feel like there was enough in this performance to, to justify sticking with him as the number nine. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree. I think I'm probably going to sound like I'm letting him off the hook a little bit, and I don't mean to be, but I think the same things I said about Rashford, I would say about Cavani, that there were times, to like to him looking frustrated, there were times when he would start to make a run and it felt like it was on, or he like made a run into space and you could see what he wanted, but then Luke Shaw or Aaron Wan-Bissaka or even McTominay when he was on the field or Fred, like there, were just, there was a half-second delay in when that ball went in or a, a full second of like, oh, I'm going to pass, now I'm going to cut it back. And I think you could see some of that frustration bubbling up as the, the frequency of the attacks and the speed of the attacks tended to get bogged down. And Arsenal, I think, did a very good job of frustrating Man United and causing some problems. But I also think Man United didn't do themselves many favors. And I think as they get a little bit more fluidity again to that attack maybe Cavani isn't having to think and hope his teammates are playing the ball but just knows they're going to knows where it's going to go and I think as things become more automatic if you're thinking less you're just able to perform better and I think that's sort of like what we talked about with Salah like I don't think Salah is consciously like doing lots of things in the moment I think he's sort of playing on instinct of like oh I can cut back here oh I can cut like shift my weight under this foot now I'll have a shot it's it's improv it's like improvisation born of repetition and I don't think you see that as much with Manchester United improvisation born of repetition Mm -hmm. that's how you practice improv you know you gotta like do the stuff over and over and over again like you gotta do the the prompts over and over and over again to get good at thinking on your feet and thinking very quickly so that then when somebody does shout out a random thing like you're a basketball salesman you know how to handle that Ryan you know how to handle that 
Yes, and we've gone long on this game, but why don't we uh, talk a little bit about Arsenal before we move on. Uh, uh, David Luiz, I think, was given the man in the match by Sky Sports. I was kind of surprised. I mean, he did have a good game, but I thought Rob Holding was possibly even better here. Um, You know, seemed to keep his concentration throughout the game, made made some decent checks in this one as well. Graham, you with me there? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a, a, another good performance by by Rob Holding. I think Wenger's quote on him was something like, sorry, he didn't cost £55 million, um, which I thought sums up Rob Holding quite well. He's he's, he's quite unfashionable. His, his hair's thinning a little bit. He's probably not going to get an Air Jordan ad campaign anytime soon, but... Uh, He's he's a he's a he's a good defender, a competent defender. It's been a while since Arsenal have have had one of those. I think he he made more touches and played more passes than anyone else in the Arsenal team beside Granit Xhaka. So he's 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 crucial in the way that they play out from the back as well. So yeah, he's one of the first names on the team sheet for Arsenal right now. Yeah, if he, he made- does. If he does get that sneaker deal, can we all just agree that it's going to be called Air Rob and not Air Holding? Because I need it to be Air Rob. <laughs> Gonna go to the footlocker and get myself some air robbies. Love it. Exactly. Uh, he he made a uh, ten clearances and I think he, he he just he just looked like he was winning all the fifty fifties. I thought he was pretty impressive this one. Someone who wasn't quite as impressive was the gentleman in front of him, uh, Thomas Partey, who looked just a bit unfit. Just looked like he was losing the ball quite a bit. Looked just a bit off the pace. Uh, wasn't too impressed with him. I wasn't too impressed with Willian either, who had um, I, I think it's twenty six games he's not scored from now, which was the uh, which was what Arlo White said on the NBC commentary. Uh, had a pretty good chance to put one away, but seemed to Rashford it up a little bit <laughs> um, in, in second. <laughs> is that is that harsh? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. Uh, but I feel like, I, I want to say poor Willian, but that I remember what he's being paid. But yeah, it has not been the most fun for him, has it? Like, w- was this Chelsea being right? Were Chelsea very smart for this, or is it just a bad situation for Willian? Are like the two not connected? That opening game against Fulham, where Willian looked really good, and it was like, oh, right? this is the be- the best transfer ever. This is right? amazing. It hasn't quite panned out that way, has it? Not so much. No, <laughs> no. And now you have certain people screaming about him on an almost weekly basis, and I do mean literally screaming. Yeah, and um, well, well, this this was a I I'd say this is a relatively encouraging game if you're an Arsenal fan. It was good to see Martinelli back in, and I think he had a he had a very important header to cut out across, which probably stopped a near certain goal if that wasn't Rashforded up. Rashforded up as well. Um, and bear in mind that Tierney and Aubameyang weren't here, and they still seem to be pretty good without them. The one thing I was surprised about is that they didn't score. Arsenal have scored mm. in their last 15 games consecutively against Manchester United before this one. I had this nailed on as an Arsenal win, so I'm a bit surprised that it did finish nil-nil, to be honest, but uh, but hey-ho, yeah. hey-ho. Any, any more for any more on this game, Graham? I'm, I'm with you. As soon as Martin Odegaard came on, I, it felt like it was going to be one nil. This is going to be Arsenal making a really smart signing. They brought in this Real Madrid player who could be starting for them, but isn't, and now they're going to turn it around. This is what happens when you get rid of Mesut Ozil. Martin Odegaard comes in and makes everything better. That was the <laughs> narrative I was terrified of, again, speaking as a Manchester United fan. So I did think they would end up winning this one or finding some way to get that like scrappy goal at the end they hit the crossbar they came close it wasn't meant to be but I do think this was a strong performance from Arsenal especially with some of the absences you mentioned and Martinelli not being able to defend which Ole Gunnar Solskjaer screamed a bunch in this game <laughs> interesting uh, I saw Yanaga Fjortoft uh tweeting formerly Swindon's finest of course um he was tweeting about Odegaard and Norwegian TV at half time he was placed in second for their man of the match uh, awards uh, he hadn't <laughs> been on the field at that point he wasn't even on the field so uh some definitely no bias going on in Norwegian fandom of Arsenal that's wonderful to see uh Graham any more to say on this game before we uh, head off 
No, just I, I, Arsenal better not spoil Odegaard, just to add to that. He would have yep. gone back to Real Sociedad if, if he hadn't gone to Arsenal, and, and that would have been really fun to see David Silva and, and Odegaard. We know Odegaard can play at, at Real Sociedad, so just just play him, Arteta. Just yep. just play him. You, I, I don't know how he fits into that team, but just, just find a place for him because he's brilliant. Indeed. Indeed. Good stuff, guys. All right, we're going to be back. We're going to be talking about the Copa Libertadores very shortly. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And we are back. We are talking Copa Libertadores. We are heading to South America. We are heading to the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro, where we saw Palmeiras take on Santos. Uh, 1-0 this one finished to Palmeiras. Uh, this one, if you called it on being sports, guys, uh, was 90 minutes of a thrill ride, followed by 10 minutes of absolute bonkersness, if that's fair to say. This was this is an interesting one, gents, because if you remember back to the previous uh, Copa Libertadores final, where we had... Um, a Brazilian scoring late goals. That was Gabigol back then. This seems like, it, well, it was, was it was longer than a year ago because this final was delayed, of course. But once again, we had uh, some late goals settling this one. Uh, before we get into the action, though, this one was a strange one because it was at the Maracanã. There haven't been fans, in my understanding, in the Brazilian league uh, lately, but this one they put 10% capacity in. 10% capacity of the Maracanã is around 8,000 people. That amount of people spread out around America now. I've said that word too many times in this past few minutes, but hey, um, that's not too bad. You could, you could space those guys out really nicely. Now, if you saw the alternate angle from the main camera, you saw that all those 8,000 people were basically sitting on each other's laps without masks on Taylor. Oh, no, sometimes they had masks on. They were just around their chins. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense, especially when, yeah, to your point, the size of the stadium, but then, like, when when you look at it a bit more, they've got that sort of, like, the advertisement that's stretched over a thing to cover all the seats. There's got to be a term for that, but, like, a giant banner, essentially. And so I think they had automatically blocked off a lot of seats. Then it's worth noting, I think it was 93 degrees at kickoff. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that people wanted to be in the shade, all that is to say, if you're going to have fans in there, you you would expect there to be some level of discipline of making sure everybody has their masks on or making sure they're spread out. That was not the case. So much so that when uh, Santos manager Kuka gets sent off later on in the game, he, having already had a prote- protracted battle with COVID, just hops right in with the fans who don't wear masks and all put their arms around him. And that felt sort of like, this is like the billboard for what not to do. And they are just kind <laughs> of living it in public on global television. Sure. Good stuff, guys. Are you telling me Kuka's made some bad decisions at some point? I am. I am saying that. I am saying that, Ryan. That that <laughs> does seem to be the case for him pretty consistently. But in this case, yeah, that one didn't make a lot of sense. The red card may be a little bit harsh, but I don't know why 
there wasn't more done to separate the fans. Because even when Palmeiras uh, score the winner, and then when they're celebrating, they're celebrating with their fans, they're jumping into the stands. Uh, yeah, I don't think that won't be a super spreader event. I'll put it that way. <laughs> well, certainly not the celebrations afterwards, looking at the Palmeiras fans who were very much dancing in the streets in close proximity after this yeah. game as well. But the uh, things I did like, well, I, what I didn't like was this gave me flashbacks to, I, I actually was lucky enough to attend a World Cup game at the American Iron 2014, Russia against Belgium, which was dull as dishwater for 88 minutes until Divok Origi, of all people, scored a winner. That was a, that was a, a dull game. Uh, I was sitting behind... Rex Ryan, the NFL coach at the time, which was fun um, at that game. Uh, and also, to, did you notice those trucks so behind? Many, so many jokes I want to make right now. But yes, <laughs> let's keep moving. Yeah, very wearing white... sandals? Was he yeah, interested very... in your sandals, Ryan? <laughs> that's, a, that's a gross deep cut, re- deep cut reference for like nine people. He, um, he, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, b- back to this game. <laughs> did, did you, did you notice? <laughs> You Look, if you want if you want to bring up foot fetishes, Ryan, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you. Okay, that's how it's gonna be. <laughs> I was wearing closed toed shoes. I can assure sure you. Were. Sure, sure, sure. I maybe had very white teeth. That's all I can remember about him at that day. He wasn't looking at anyone's feet, or maybe he was looking at 22 people's feet. I mean, on a grass it feels rectangle. like soccer is his sport. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've been derailed once again. Um, <laughs> let's let's just say this wasn't a good advert for the Brazilian Campeonato. It was a no. hot day, as you say. It was a, it was tipping over 100 degrees at some points in Rio here. Uh, I I think I described this one as the Arsenal Man United of South America, particularly for the first hour. Not much going on here. Graham, am I being harsh? It just felt like. Obviously, it's, maybe it's comparing apples and oranges, comparing South American soccer to European soccer, but the passing, the technical ability here, some of the decision-making, it didn't strike me as being a quite uh, pinnacle of South American soccer. No, and, and, and I, I, think, I think that, for me, the technical ability was there. It was like every attacker or every player had FIFA stats of, of 20 in technique, but one in decision-making. And that right. that seemed to be the case right up until the, until stoppage time, where the one moment of quality is, is Ronnie um, crossing. It's a great cross to the back post, and then Breno Lopez with the header back across. It's, it's, it's a brilliant cross and a brilliant header. And genuinely, that was the only moment of, of quality. I think Palmeiras, that, that was their only... The only, the, it was either one or two shots on goal that they had in the whole game. In the semi-finals, um, they didn't manage a, a a shot in the. I think it was in their game against who were they playing? River Plate. Um, yeah. yeah, I think they struggled for for shots in that that game. Those, those games as well um, against uh, River Plate in the second leg, they lost two 0 So that was maybe to be expected, and I think it was quite a, a pragmatic. Uh, approach from uh, Abel Ferreira who noticed the the heat and knew that Santos would would press high on them and so kind of bided his time a little bit but yeah I think I think maybe the the, the context is important is that I've heard from a lot of people who who watch more more Copa Libertadores than than I I watched I'm, I'm a fair weather fan I watched the semi-finals and, and, and the final and not the whole tournament I have to admit but I Shame think this you. Sorry, I think this this the uh, Libertadores finals have a re- reputation for for being like this. They're, they're quite tense and tetchy, and not exactly the, the 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 greatest sporting spectacles. But at least we got something in stoppage time. I was complaining about the eight minutes of stoppage time at the end. I was covering this game for Eurosport. I I, I was I was complaining for about the eight minutes, which came from absolutely nowhere. But thank goodness we got eight minutes of stoppage time because that's where all the good stuff was. Yeah, it did kind of kick off then. I, I was trying to think of Palmeiras' chances before. The only one I can think of is Luis Adriano, uh, formerly of 
Milan and, and Shakhtar, who I think he was offside in the end, but he was got sort of came close when uh, at one point in the second half. But otherwise, yeah, not not much going on in that first ninety. But as you say, um, things really rather kicking off in ex- in in, uh, in uh, injury time there with the goal with Bruno Lopez getting that looping header, which was was uh, some decent quality there. But Coach Kuka. Uh, taking some attention, uh, Taylor, with uh, getting in a scuffle with uh, right-back Marcos Rocha. It it looked a bit innocuous, that whole thing. Was it just me or wasn't much in that incident? I mean, for people who haven't seen it, it's basically ball goes out of bounds. Uh, Palmeiras have the throw, and and it's one of those, like, I think Santos have given the ball away in a strong position for Palmeiras to take the throw quickly, and then maybe there's a counterattack on. I think Kuka, the manager for Santos, recognizes that as the ball is near him. He kind of goes to pick it up, but does that like, oh, shoot, I don't know how to pick up a ball all of a sudden. And I think there's then that scramble. (laughs) Rocha comes in, tries to get it. They both fall over. Then the bench is clear because that's always going to happen. I swear there was a punch thrown in there that did not get carded. But for some reason, Kuka does get a red card for that one. My only guess is that that was the referee trying to sort of stamp out any sort of tomfoolery, housery, if you will, early. But then he also let a lot of stuff go. So I still struggle with that red card and why it happened. Though, again, I don't have much sympathy for Kuka. So with that said, I think that that was also sort of a good insight into the game. (laughs) I agree with Graham that I was I was ended up being happy for those extra eight minutes for the goal. But I think watching the first 22 minutes, I think it was, I wrote down. I went back and timed it. There are five minutes and 40 seconds of open play in the first 22 minutes. That's how many fouls there were. That's how physical it was. And I couldn't get over the vibe. Like Arsenal Man United had this a little bit where I was like, is it just like, it's a big game. It's a historical rivalry. Are they both sort of overwhelmed by the occasion, even though there aren't fans there? I don't think that was the case for that game. I do think it was for this one. I I take Graham's point that I think the, the occasion and the moment and the how big this game is, but then also what this game tends to devolve into because it's so pressurized. I think that was a big part of why at least those opening 20, 25 minutes were not particularly pleasant. And I would extend that to a lot of the game, that it was sort of pass, pass, pass. Uh, He kicked it long, pass, 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 foul. Like it felt like it was tough for either team to get into a rhythm. And maybe that's why the referee carded Kuka, because he once again prevented the rhythm and that just couldn't be allowed anymore. Uh, listener, I'm going to jump in here and say that on our group chat, we uh, Taylor shared his notes with us that he's been taking. They're quite OCD, very impressive. So it doesn't surprise me that you timed the first 20 minutes for open play. So I'm, <laughs> I, I was just, I was just like, this feels ridiculous to me. Am I wrong? Like, am I just focusing on the number of fouls and the stoppages? But have you ever done that when you're sort of watching a game on replay and you skip through a little bit? Like, mm. like, oh, the ball went out for a goal kick. I don't need to see the five replays of the shot that went wide. Like, do, do you know what I'm talking about when you skip through yeah. to? Kind of just watch the game yeah and i think you're quite right it was there was a lot of robust tackles going in i'd say particularly i noticed the santos defense and maybe the palmeiras midfield mm-hmm. just uh stuff that wouldn't quite fly in the premier league i think yeah no but like but like it wouldn't and then when i was skipping through those incidents kept happening so there was like a good like two minutes when i was i kept doing like the fast forward seven seconds thing and it would be like another stoppage oh we're getting a replay of the stoppage oh they haven't taken the free kick yet fast forward seven seconds balls in play oh it's a foul like that's <laughs> that's where it came from i'm just like i don't understand how much time is is being wasted with these moments uh so the timing became necessary ryan that's how yeah. it was 
I, and I did enjoy the, the poop housery aspect yeah. of that with, with a lot of fouls, with Kuka get, getting the red card. Although, as I mentioned at the top of the show, wearing the T-shirt with the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus on it, it's he probably choice. should have got a red card straight away for coming onto, into <laughs> like, a professional environment wearing that T-shirt. And I wanna, we need to clarify, because if people haven't seen, it's not a like it's not a Caravaggio like screen print or something like that. We're talking <laughs> like an airbrushed... like cartoon uh, uh, baby Jesus and, and mom hanging out. Like it was not a a sort of uh, like tastefully done one. It was more like, look, Jesus is with me. Uh, and I guess that didn't end up being the case for Kuka. Such is life. Yeah, and Kuka being a, a fairly divisive character, as we have alluded to mm -hmm. uh, thus far in this podcast, uh, when he was playing for Gremio in the 1980s, he was convicted of rape in Switzerland. So that is a thing that happened. You can look into that if that is your want. But uh, yeah, uh, quite this, this did quite kick off uh, in injury time, Graham. I particularly enjoy Palmeiras subbing on two centre-backs immediately after scoring. That seemed like a wonderful <laughs> move from there. Yeah, and and Felipe Melo being being yes. one of the players who came on for for thirty yeah. seconds. It wasn't it wasn't quite a John Terry because he actually did get on get on the pitch. But yes, uh, a, a customary appearance for Felipe Melo. I mean, there's there was more to to talk about really around this match, the color and everything that that, that actually happened. I mean, the the, the Kuka T-shirt, as you say. I mean, it reminded me of. Um, uh, this reference might be over your head, but there was back when Brendan Rodgers was Liverpool manager, there was a, a meme that went around of him looking up to the sky with Bob Paisley above him and asking, how, yeah. how am I getting on? The, the kind of painting that it was reminded me of, of that. But Kuka asking for a VAR review of his, of his sending off uh, got me thinking, how many things in life can I ask for a VAR review of? I mean, <laughs> are we stretching the boundaries of what that can be used for? Uh like, can I use it for a speeding ticket or something like that? And 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 there's a Palmaris backroom staff member crawling on the turf after full time. I thought, I I, I think it was Jack Lang actually, and, and this is what it looked like. Jack Lang, who who works the Athletic, obviously, and is a bit of a Brazilian football expert, um, he tweeted that he was pretending to be a pig, and it was in in some form of reference to to uh, Palmaris's nickname as 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 the pigs. But then it it, it was later clarified that it was an, uh, it's a religious thing and I which I didn't really quite understand but I've not I've not really seen that after the Champions League final a member of you know Liverpool coaching staff or Bayern Munich coaching staff crawling along the turf pretending to be to be a pig or some form of relig religious symbol I'm not really sure what's going on there but yes it was interesting <laughs> I'd like I to like see, I, uh, I'd like to see Jurgen Klopp you know mini Klopp the, the the guy who looks just like Jurgen Klopp on the bench I want to see him do the pig thing at some point that would be fun I, I am still going to go with the idea that Kuka and uh, Ricardo Lavolpe, the former Mexico manager, just have the same stylist and approach to managing because uh, both rocking jeans in hot, hot situations, although Ricardo Lavolpe with the bolo tie and smoking on the sidelines really takes it to the next <laughs> level. The only chaos energy I can picture that would kind of balance that one out is Felipe Melo. And I was so overjoyed to see him come on the field because my first thought not realizing he was part of this was why is a 50 year old man running onto the field then it was realizing it was felipe Melo and just being so excited who i think good of him to take a, a brief break from filming his cameo in uh vikings to play in this game just very briefly <laughs> and then go back to filming but really nice to see him on the field i love him from his galatasaray days uh even if they ended contentiously as do most things when it comes to felipe Melo. Yeah, nothing like a 102nd-minute impact substitution <laughs> for Lee Melo there. He cleared that ball with authority that one time. <laughs> sure did. Now, uh, obviously, the baby Jesus made a, had an mm -hmm. uh, interesting role in this game, as yeah. did Gabriel Jesus. 
uh, tenuous link there. He once played at Palmeiras as and, uh, Neymar, of course, formerly played at Santos. Uh, I'm reading that the pair, Neymar and Jesus, had a friendly wager on this contest. Uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the winner agree- agreeing that the loser buys the other a slap-up meal. So I'm guessing, you know, uh, Jesus won, won the bet there. Uh, I don't know where he's going to buy or when he's going to buy this meal because there's no restaurants open in the UK at the moment. I'm not sure how that situation is in Paris, but we'll see how that bet unfolds. Uh, what one... was the phrase you just used? In... A slap-up meal? Slap-up meal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it means you have a meal and then you slap each other. Is that right, Greg? <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. I'm picturing. Is this, a, is this a British thing, a slap-up meal? I think it is. It must right. be. I think we found one. We found one that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you aluminium monsters. What, what, what does it mean? What does it mean? Just a big Just meal. A, a full meal. You know, many courses, desserts, drinks, uh, slap up. Okay. The, the works. Okay, the works. I got you. I mean, in, like, part of my, like, trepidation when you began this anecdote, Ryan, was I was just ready for it to be something that would just make me feel like I, I chose the wrong line of work. Like, it was going to be like, they bet a Bugatti or something insane. So, <laughs> I guess a, a works meal is fine. Also, is Kieran Trippier must be furious at this. He's been banned for for ten games for WhatsApp messages between <laughs> his friends, and Neymar and Gabriel Jesus are doing Instagram lives, wagering live games with each other, and that's absolutely fine, is it? I well, you know, when... Graham, uh, these things happen. I don't know what to say. <laughs> when, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. When there's no betting companies involved and merely slap-up meals, maybe that makes it different. But you raise an excellent, excellent point there, Graham. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a gray area, and perhaps one uh, these TSS... Uh, fire truck of lawyers might want us to avoid at this point um why don't we wrap up this game by talking about what's next for uh palmeiras they'll be in the cl- well yeah i suppose it is what's next for them uh, they'll be in the club world cup in february in qatar that one's still happening everybody in february in qatar um they'll be going into the semi-final stage by munich in the other semi-final likely that palmeiras will face by munich Based on this, and maybe Graham, if you if you watch the semis as well, both uh, both these Brazilian teams beating Argentinian opposition in those semis to get to this game. Do you think that they stand a chance against Bayern in this Club World Cup? Um, no. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry Palmeiras. I mean, they do have some good at- attacking quality. I mean, they were without um, Gabriel Verón for for this match, who's widely regarded as the as the next uh, you know b- young Brazilian superstar. He's He's, he is still quite young, uh, sorry, un, uh, quite um, quite raw and unpolished, so he, he's not quite the the, the full uh, the, the finished product yet. But um, Menino is another really good young player, so they, they do have quality. And in, in this match, um, Abel Ferreira it kind of held them back a little bit. As I said, it was quite a pragmatic approach from him, um, which mm. paid off in the end. So I, I guess we've spoken, Ryan, uh, previously about Bayern Munich's high line, and, and they do have some quality to, to get in behind that high line, but... It's just it's just a different level, isn't it? Bayern Bar- Munich and and and, and Palmeiras, and I, I say that with respect for for South American football and 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 for Palmeiras and what they've achieved. They are a decent team, but I don't see Bayern Munich being troubled really, to be honest. Did I? Any more on this game before we uh, before we move on? No, it's just it is the frustrating reality of the Club World Cup, especially when it's Bayern Munich uh, as like the European. Uh, entrant that it's just like yeah like maybe this is going to be nil nil in the 60th minute but then Byron will have a Byron moment and they'll end up one nil or two nil winners so I again yeah I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody it's just that Byron Munich are very good very consistently 
Very good indeed. And yeah, perhaps favourites for the Club World Cup. That storied old tournament we all <laughs> love once again taking place in February. This month, in fact in Qatar. We all look forward to that and we're all look forward to the final section of this weekend review. We're going to take a look at transfers right after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, gentlemen, it is transfer deadline day. I hope you're all wearing your yellow ties and you've got your giant screens behind you and your iPads and you've got six mobile phones in front of you because that's the setup I like to keep on this very holy day. Um, much less spending in this January window. Uh, according to Transfer Marked, uh, Premier League clubs spent 242 million euros on uh, 88 arrivals in the previous January window. We're looking at about a third of that tally this year. And I'm looking at the Guardian totalizer. I'm using Sky Sports lingo there. Um, the clubs in the top five European leagues have completed just under 300 deals worth around 220 million pounds. So a lot less going on, which, Taylor, this is curious because obviously... A lot of teams looking tired and frustrated. A lot of teams could probably do with some backup, but also a lot of teams not wanting to give up any players or having the funds to do so. So we're we're at a curious catch-22 moment in soccer, aren't we? It's, uh, to use a clumsy analogy, which is my style, like, it, it's it's <laughs> vague World War One vibes. This is where you guys saw it okay, going, Okay, go right? on, go on. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, it seems to be, like, everybody knows, we like, we have, like, a lot of the big teams are, it seems to be, are getting rid of some of the players they know are surplus to requirement or, or aren't going to fit anymore. And so that seems to be the focus for the bigger clubs, for Man United, for Arsenal, for Real Madrid. It's it's moving players around that aren't going to fit with your, your squad. But simultaneously, a lot of these teams have depth issues. And we go back to the age-old January transfer problem of players are going to cost more. Teams are sort of very aware of what everybody's vulnerabilities are and the areas of need, so they know they can ask for more. And so it feels like this situation where everybody needs to strengthen and lots of teams have players to move, but like nobody wants to be the one to make the first move or get the thing wrong or become pot committed in the wrong way. Mm. And so everyone instead feels to be keeping their powder dry and just sort of offloading Timothy Fosumensa. And, and like like the lesser known players, it seems like maybe they're trying to clear off the books a little bit. But in the end, we're not going to get as many big deals. And I guess that's not as big of a surprise given the window, given the financial issues from COVID. But then, yeah, with your to your point, with the number of fixtures we still have and the number that have already been played and how tired everybody looks, it does seem like this could have gone the opposite way and been the January window when the doors were blown off and everybody moved everywhere. But it doesn't seem like that's the way it's going to go. And I guess if we go with the World War One analogy, that means there hasn't been an outbreak of war. So that's good. Everything stayed calm. It's just very, very tense and the lines are still drawn. You know, there was an outbreak of war in World War One, right? Yeah, see, we've gone alternate history, in which case that in which that hasn't <laughs> happened, unless 
This is a weird one. This is a weird way to go with this. Unless Ozan Kabak is the Franz Ferdinand moment, and that's the inciting incident, and then everything kind of unravels from here, and everybody starts moving really, really quickly in the final few hours. Oh, so let's talk about that then. Liverpool um, in need the assassination of assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That's what we're going to talk about next. Correct. Yes, and Google also Google. the band Franz Ferdinand. I'd like to do a tight twenty <laughs> on them as well. Um, no centre-backs, or, or a need for centre-backs at Liverpool, I should say. They were linked with Preston's Ben Davies, who uh, Richard Jolly on Twitter handily pointed out is the second, would be the second Ben Davies to feature in the Premier League behind Ben Davies. Um, and Schalke's Ozan Kabak, who I believe at the time of broadcast, or at the time of speaking, is this deal done? Is this, it looks like it's about to be done, this Ozan Kabak deal from Schalke. Um, and Schalke, it being contingent on uh, Mustafi coming in as cover, which I believe he has done. So Schalke having a Mustafi and Klasenak on the books in their defence. Interesting stuff. So it seems like for Liverpool, uh, Graham, the solution to not having uh, enough cover at centre-back is to either go for someone from the lower leagues of England or Germany's worst team. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, first of all, Schalke are doing Arsenal a lot of favours there with those two, <laughs> those two deals, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, Liverpool. This today feels very un-Liverpool like. Um, this is a yep. club that waited for Virgil Van Dijk. They waited six months because they were sure he was the right guy. They were obviously vindicated in that. They waited for the right goalkeeper. Liverpool have a, a well-earned reputation for planning out their transfer moves, not just one transfer window a, a, in advance, but sometimes two or, or three transfer windows in advance. And yet the players that they have targeted here, I mean, Ben Davis, um, Scottish connection here, had, had had been expected to go to Celtic and has been expected to go to Celtic for a couple of weeks now. So he's been on the market for, for quite some time. And yet Liverpool only just making a move for him now. The same goes for Quebec, who, of course, Schalke are having real financial troubles this month. They've tried to get, uh, I think, I read uh, Bentaleb, they, they, they're you know, trying to cancel his contract or get buyers for him. So they're desperate for cash and have been for a number of, of, of months. So feels like they could have got that deal done earlier, earlier as well. And I understand that Joe Matip, has, his injury has maybe... Um, increased the urgency um, that, that Liverpool needed to get a deal done, but they're going for two central defenders. So that implies that they always felt that they needed one. And then just let's just say the Ben Davies one is, is the, the Matip short-term solution. So I, 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 I don't understand why they've left this so late in the window. It feels like a mad dash to get any centre-back over, over the line because they, I read that they were also making a move for, for Marseille's uh, Shaletta, Shaletta Shark. I never say that, that name. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening. But the fact that they're, they've been in for three centre-backs in the last day of the transfer window doesn't reflect terribly well on Liverpool and, and what their transfer strategy is. I mean, give, we can give them a break in that most teams seem to leave it till the dying minutes of this window, right? That, yeah. That's the, the MO of a lot of big teams. And I suppose there are business reasons for that being the case. But... Um, Taylor, what do we what do we think about Ozan Kabak? I mean, I'm looking at a Sky Sports graphic here that suggests these. Um, we know we've seen these pretty strong in the air, uh, good with duels, good with ball recoveries, a little bit weaker with interceptions and forward passes. Seems like the kind of player who could do a job at Liverpool. I mean, except for the the, the passing stat you mentioned there, because yeah. that does feel like a pretty fundamental part of what Liverpool want to do. Yeah. And that's where, like, I, I take Graham's point a little bit that it, it feels like for a club like Liverpool who have this very stated approach and this very calm approach, I would say, to transfers for it to be a little bit panicky at the end is a little bit odd. I would say maybe it's a positive that they're like like 
swallowing that pill, biting that bullet, and just being okay with the chaos if it means they have to get something done. But I also think I'm sort of like coming at this from the perspective of I read uh, Oliver Kay's really great article for The Athletic sort of about a lot of different anecdotes from the final day of the transfer window and how it tends to be a very bad time to buy. It's all interwoven with the Sunderland Till I Die episode when Stuart Donald keeps trying to buy Will Gregg. And <laughs> Bit him off. He, what's it? <laughs> God. Oh, I think they ended up paying $4 million for him, by the way. Wow. Anyway. Uh, Beat him off. And, I love it. Sorry. And the, and the like, But one of the points in that article is sort of that for as much as we like to think that it is a lot of science and there's like well-reasoned, well-articulated approaches, sometimes it is just emotional panic in the moment. And I, I kind of think that's what's happening with Liverpool here. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think it is the reality that they're looking at this and thinking... The title isn't really even gone yet, but we can definitely still be competing for second. We we definitely still have lots of different opportunities to win silverware and do big things, but we got to make some moves. And I think that there's a little bit of a fear of what happens if we don't. It seems like we could continue to slide. Maybe we'll get some performances. Maybe people get back healthy in time, but maybe not. There's a lot more maybes, and I guess they feel more comfortable with the maybe of let's sign two to three center backs and see what happens with that. I guess they'd rather have the depth and the options versus trying to get a, a winger to play center back. And like, Divac Origi is big enough to play center back. Let's put him back there and see what happens. So it feels not what we've come to expect from Liverpool, but simultaneously doesn't feel like a, a bad panicky situation necessarily. Yeah. It's a bit of an indictment of this window in, in that this is the only deal we're talking about from big six teams at this stage yeah. of the window, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. the biggest deal of this window is Dominic Zobersley going from Salzburg to Leipzig around 23 million. That's, basically an internal transfer. Um, yeah. uh, there's a few deals up at the air at time of recording. Upper Campo at RB Leipzig might be, uh, his release clause might be triggered at some point. Uh, Deli Ali, maybe uh, Mike going to microwave baked beans in Paris. We're not quite sure about that one I yet. I think but... that's off, but now that I've said that, I'm sure it'll be back on. Yeah, it did seem to be off earlier in the day. We'll see how that one pans out, though. Uh, any other good deals that you think have been done? I'm, I mean, we, we mentioned Arsenal earlier, getting rid of Meza Ozil and getting Martin Odegaard coming in. That seems like decent business, right, Taylor? Absolutely. I mean, I, I really do think Martin Odegaard will be a very good player for Arsenal. I hope that's not famous last words. I also thought Gareth Bale would be incredibly impactful for uh, Tottenham this season. So, yeah. you know, grain of salt there. <laughs> but that whole sequence, like... It makes a lot of sense. It's not great for Arsenal across the board because I, I still don't really know what to make of the Mesut Ozil situation, and I look forward to that book that comes out or that Netflix series. It should be both of those things. But him going to Fenerbahce, you you would expect him with kind of a point to prove, I think he's going to tear that league apart, and then I won't be surprised if he gets transfer offers from some larger clubs still because I think he'll be just fine and still, what, like 32? Like he's still got a couple years left to, to do something. So I think that move makes a lot of sense for him. And then I think... The Odegaard move in, clearing off some of the players they have. I think a, a solid window for Arsenal. In terms of moves that stood out to me, I have to mention one uh, in London for Tottenham. Uh, Mauricio Pochettino has a son did, and two sons at that, one of whom is now like a performance analyst with PSG. But the other one has moved permanently to Watford. Did you all know that he has a child? I did. And is he called Mauricio as well? Yes. He is, but spelled differently, yeah, which I don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> With a Z. With a Z. Yes. Yeah. I'm so confused. But I just like, I, I, I saw that on the transfer tracker and I was like, wow, you guys are very late with this news. But Pochettino <laughs> did not sign for Watford. Let's get this right. Oh, wait. I see what's happening here. Yeah. Two sons. Mauricio Pochettino. 
Uh, yeah, and Maurizio Pochettino will now be playing for Watford. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever understand. It's fair enough naming a son after yourself, but with a different spelling. That's a different. That's a whole different ball game, isn't it's it? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to talk about signings, I think oh, good business. I think um, interesting in London. I liked um, Sebastian Heller and West Ham getting twenty million for him. You know. Yeah. They don't seem to have missed him terribly, I say. They scored 13 times in January already, have West Ham, or they did score 13 times in January. Haller's already got a couple for Ajax, and we saw him looking pretty good in that uh, first game in De Topper that we covered on the Weekend Review not so long ago. Uh, and West Ham getting uh, Jesse Lingard on loan, that's a decent move. I know David Moyev wants a striker still. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'd be, I think that was a decent deal for all parties involved. Are you with me there, Graham? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think... Uh... Lingard needs needs to play football, doesn't he? I mean, he's he's mm. he's, a, he's a decent player. I mean, let, let's not forget that. I mean, going going back to the Mourinho days at Manchester United, he was one of their more consistent performers. Jesse Lingard, a, a, a pretty regular fixture in the England team as well around the the 2018 World Cup. So, um, yeah, I think that feels like a, a pretty natural move for him. It, it felt like destiny that he'd play for West Ham at at, at some <laughs> point in his career. <laughs> Um, can I go continental with a with a good move? Uh, Please do. Yeah, I think Musa Dembele to Atletico Madrid is is a decent yeah. move. Mm. I think he's a, a big upgrade on Diego Costa, who around the, it coincided with him being released from his contract. Um, and it's a loan with an option to buy, and the option to buy is twenty million euros. And for a player who has done really well in Ligue 1 and in the Champions League, has scored against Manchester City in the Champions League last last uh, season. He was quoted at around 50 million, 60 million euros um, not so long ago. He was linked with Manchester United and, and Chelsea as well. I think that's a good deal for Atletico Madrid. One thing I would say, though, is that good strikers don't always thrive under Diego Simeone. So um, I wouldn't say it's a guaranteed success, but I, I think they've improved their squad um, in this window, Atleti, just by doing that one deal, by getting Costa out and by getting Dembele in. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and a Graham, rumor Graham. floats that um, Diego Costa might be going to a, a a Premier League team of some sort. I'm not sure if that deal might be dead in the water by the time this has come out. Um, Taylor, another one I thought was interesting. If we're going to talk continental and good value, Mario Mandzukic going free to Milan. He's only 34, but it's um, yeah. coming in from Qatar. That's a low risk play for me. That's a decent low risk play. It's not going to be very expensive for Milan, and you know they've got they've they've shown that age is only uh, ain't nothing but a number, baby. With, with other forwards they have at that organization. I quite like that one. Yeah, I mean, they're hiding all their goals up high, so Mandzukic can help with that one. Because, yeah, <laughs> Mandzukic and Ibrahimovic, that's that's going to be a combo. I think we talked about that last week or the week before. That That's that's one that we didn't necessarily expect to be like combining for Milan maybe three or four years ago. But here we are with Mario Mandzukic coming in and maybe readying the ship for them, though things seem to be a little bit uh, chaotic at the moment for Milan. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Um Taylor, your perspective yeah. on Manchester United's window, the only signing, as we mentioned, as Graham mentioned earlier, on Ahmad Diallo coming in from Atalanta, could work well with uh, Cavani up top, maybe? Uh, are you happy with that window as a Manchester United fan? I'm not unhappy with it. Like That really is my, my answer to that, just because I don't, I'm glad they didn't go out and spend six times what they should have spent for a player who might not be what they need in the moment. It, it's, it is strange to me that there still seem to be like, oh, we didn't get Jaden Sancho, well, then we're only going to sign teenagers. That's our entire approach from now on. Uh, but they didn't, I guess they did kind of pay over the odds for a player who's played like 13 times in like top flight. Uh, but I think for them to not sort of like blow their entire bank balance that they've already done, like I think it makes sense for them to be a bit restrained. 
I guess where I'm coming from is like, yeah, it's fine. It's not going to make them any better, but I'm also not really convinced they would have been title challengers to begin with. So even if they did bring in Jaden Sancho, I don't know if that has the immediate impact that a move might have in the summer. So I think it's smart, but I just think it also shows sort of where their intentions are. I always go with a transfer is it's a solid window if the team, if, if it feels like unfair at the end of it a little bit. And that's how I feel mm-hmm. with the Odegaard one. It's like, how, wait, what? That was allowed to happen? And I think the same thing with uh, Dembele to Atletico Madrid, Graham. I think that's a really great shout for like, wait, what? Like they, this team that's already challenging for the title just got this very good forward. That doesn't feel like it's going to work well for everybody else. So I didn't have any of those moments for Man United. So I guess in that regard, not the greatest windows, but not the worst one either. Yeah, interesting stuff. And we had on the on the um, on the running order players that we may have forgot existed. Mm-hmm. And I thought long and hard about this. And I think the one that I noticed was Max Meyer at Crystal Palace. Who, <laughs> it's, you know, he didn't. It's not that long ago he was playing. I don't think he's played much, if at all, this season. But he's gone to Cologne on a free transfer. So one of those sort of players who not the, not that long ago at Schalke, you know, in the Champions League, he's going to be a huge star. He's going to come to a Premier League team. Oh, he's gone to Crystal Palace. Okay. So that, that, that was an interesting career trajectory that we've seen from Max May. That was, that was my nomination for a player we may have forgotten. Uh, Graham, any, any good, good deals, any bad deals, any players you've forgotten from this window? Um, players that I'd forgotten, I did have Lingard on my list, but obviously we've, we've kind of spoken about him. Um, I think uh, William Saliba, which, which I don't really know what's gone on with his Arsenal career. Arsenal spent €30 million Euros on him. Wow. Then sent him on loan to Saint-Etienne. Did well on loan last season there. Brought him back. There was a lot of excitement about him. Then didn't register him in the in, in their Premier League squad or the Europa League. Or I think he's actually in the Europa League squad. They didn't register him in the Premier League squad. He's been playing with the reserves and has now gone on loan to Nice and has been speaking this week about it, he, his amusement at what's happened at Arsenal, saying he didn't expect to be training with the reserves. So we went from in the summer, a lot of people saying Saliba would be a solution to Arsenal's problems to now he's on loan at Nice for the rest of the season as a bit of a forgotten man. So strange one. Don't don't really know what's going on there. I, I, I'd like to see, I'll, I'll kind of be watching a little bit more of Nice just to see how he gets on, um, whether he yeah. is up to the hype and whether Arsenal have made a really strange decision there. I actually think it's been a decent window for Arsenal as a whole. I think the Ozil thing, they needed to, to just end that Odegaard coming in. The only thing that would have been better with that is if they'd got a, a purchase option. Um, all the reports say that it's just a straight loan deal until the summer, but he's an upgrade on on, on Ozil, given that Ozil wasn't in the squad, is what I mean by that. Um, and then Mustafi off uh, Kalasinac off the wage bill as well. Um, but yeah, Saliba uh, is a bit of a forgotten man at the Emirates Stadium right now. And and Graham, like we we've seen it before with Serge Gnabry of a player who Arsenal don't really trust to play like consistent first team football. They let him loan out, then they then they let him be sold, and now he's a consistent and very accomplished starter for Bayern Munich. So yeah, I think all this ends with William Saliba uh, starting for Ars- or Bayern Munich like three years down the road, and Arsenal fans scratching their heads about that one. <laughs> Tate, any other nominations for good uh, good business, bad business? Yeah, I had I had two. I had like one, uh, two I'm sort of uncertain on, basically. The first, I talk about him a lot on this show. I'm going to do more of it. Is Papu Gomez to Sevilla right, for 5 million euros. Yeah. That feels like a very good move for Sevilla if they build the team around him a little bit because I don't think of him as this high-intensity, high-pressing player. I think of him as sort of give him free reign and he will create and cause problems. He's a uh, and that is sort of what uh, say it again. He's the the Benega replacement for Sevilla. I think that's that's the role he'll play for them, and I think that's a okay. good signing. 
You, so you think that'll work then? Because th- that is my like, like he had the falling out with Gasparini that was essentially because he was asked to play left wing and really didn't want to. And that led to, I think, Gasparini taking issue with a player complaining about where he was asked to play. And then it's the falling out from there. So I think that's why I'm sort of looking at this as like, is it going to work or is he going to move to Sevilla and be like, well, no, I don't want to do that one either. Uh, but it sounds like, Graham, you're a little bit more positive about things. Yeah, obviously there is a volatility to 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 Papu Gomez as as we've seen, but yeah, there's there's definitely a role in in that Sevilla team. They never replaced Ever Benega after after he left last season, and he was always the one in Lopetegui's squad that had just a little bit more. I take what you're saying about the intensity of, of Papu Gomez, and he maybe doesn't have the intensity that Benega had, but Benega always had a little bit more freedom to drift and roam and kind of create in that okay. midfield, and I think that's a role that he'll perform well for Sevilla. Okay. All right, cool. Then I'm, I'm more positive on that one than I was when we started. So thank you, Graham. Uh, and then the mm. other one is Saeed Benrama to, uh, to West Ham from Brentford. Mm. That is a player who I watched a lot of. Uh, not last season. I didn't watch a ton of Brentford, but basically when he started, I think we had a listener question a while ago about like which Brentford players could be on the move since they didn't get promoted. And he was one who stood out to me in, in all the positive ways. And I thought could be a very impactful signing for a Premier League club. I think I'm just, I don't know if it's bias or what, but it, it's West Ham is what gives me like a little bit of concern <laughs> just because like, I think it goes back to the, uh, that Ali K article I mentioned earlier, Liverpool talking about the Andy Carroll signing before it happened. Like one of their executives joke, like, ah, worst case, we'll sell him to West Ham for 20 million. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. And West Ham have like, sometimes they make these really smart signings that work out really, really well and become these like next level players. And then sometimes the people that we thought were going to be that end up being sold off to China because we don't know where else to, what else to do with them. And I just don't want Ben Rama to be that player, but he is a flashy goal scorer at times, 17 goals, 10 assists last season before that, the season before 10 goals, 15 assists. But then before that, it's not nearly as productive and he's 25. So for him, it's not as though he was like 19 and had two really good seasons and now he's on the move. There is that maybe possibility that if he doesn't hit the ground running immediately, he becomes a question mark, a, a sort of player that is a luxury to have, but not necessarily one that David Moyes will use. And so I, I hope that doesn't end up being the case. I hope he doesn't get pushed off to the side and is training with the reserves a year from now and then gets moved on to Ajax for <laughs> a reduced transfer fee as happened with Haller. So we shall see, but that's another one where I, I had a little bit of a like, that's good, but maybe bad. I'm not sure. <laughs> one to watch there for sure on the good, bad, not sure scale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting window for Atalanta as well. As you say, get it, uh, Papa Gomez and Diallo moving out. They managed to keep the band together, mostly with, I think it was just Castagna who left in the summer. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, things shake out for uh, the they Italian. They lost this weekend. <laughs> there you go well things shaking out not so hot uh, 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 presently so uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about on this subject gents uh, not quite tangentially related to the window but Leo Messi this was essentially his last window in his current contract to leave for money uh, and we saw El Mundo publishing some details of money a 555 million euro contract over four years is what Messi is on uh, which is earning him over 138 million a year, which is okay. He could do some uh, slap-up meals slash uh, Lamborghini bets if he wanted to, and if he could evade the authorities. Uh, he'll be 34 uh, this summer when he does make his next move. What do we think about Leo Messi? Um, is there any way he can go? Is there any way he could vaguely even afford him? Graham, any thoughts on Messi and whether he should have already packed it in at Barcelona by now? 
This was always the thing with 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 Messi. Going back to the summer when there was all the chat of Manchester City and, and PSG, and, and I indulged in it just like everyone else. I did a little, I did a little bit of analysis of where he could go. But the thing I, I kept coming back to was was just the money side of things. I think at that time the football leaks uh, book, isn't it? It's a book. Uh, it, it, they reported that he was on two million euros a week before tax. This this new con these new contract details published in El Mundo over the weekend put it at around two point six million euros. Um, per week before tax, and and that limits his options significantly to the point where I, I don't even know if Manchester City and, and PSG have that kind of money to to to, to burn. Um, it would have to be a a, a a a forensic calculation on how much money Messi is going to bring into the club. And I've seen a lot of Twitter threads about that, about how Messi brings in so much money to Barcelona, and actually he is worth that amount of money. But it's different if he's he's changing a club. You know, it need to would need to be a, a pretty instant impact commercially to to justify that sort of money. So to be honest, I've always felt like it got to a point where there was a bit of week where I felt like he might go to City. But apart from that moment when I wavered, I felt like um, Messi when there's a new president that comes in. I know the election has been postponed until March, but it seemed like it seems like uh, Joan Laporta is probably going to be the next uh, Barcelona president. Obviously, his second term in, in that role. Laporta gets on with Messi. Messi knows him well. There's suggestions that his family have 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 uh, back Laporta in the election. So it just feels like. It's, I still think he'll stay at Barcelona, but I, I don't know what happens to that contract because Barcelona are obviously, excuse me, obviously in uh, dire financial straits right now and, and really getting pushed towards bankruptcy. So I, I think he's going to have to take a pay cut. Well, he's going to have to take a pay cut wherever he goes, I think. And on, on that note, Taylor, where in Paris do you think he's going to live next year? <laughs> uh, I think he and Neymar are just going to split a flat and it should be a, a fun, odd couple situation that could also be good reality TV. I'm creating a lot of Netflix content today. Like, I really, I was, I was sort of listening very, very intently, even more intently than I already do when Graham was talking because Ryan and I had this question posed to us in like the live broadcast we did last week. And I think we both were like, I mean, it seems like he's going to move, but it also feels like he's not. And I, I really, I just am kind of at a loss when it comes to Messi, because for as much as it seems like bridges have been burned and he doesn't really want to be there and he doesn't like a lot of the people involved, I just, I don't understand a world in which he's not playing for Barcelona and everything that would be required to get him playing somewhere else just feels like such a massive obstacle mm. that it, it almost, to some extent, like the conspiracy side of my brain feels like the current Barcelona leadership are just now like leaking contract details, even though they say they didn't. It's an alleged thing. We could get sued all over the place today for some of these accusations. But <laughs> uh, I feel like that was maybe even them just being like, you know what? We're burning bridges. We're going to make all this public and it's going to be really hard for him to have like a positive situation with the next uh, like group that comes in to run the club. I, I don't really know what is happening there. But it all just makes me very confused because even, as I've said before, if he did move to PSG or Man City and really were like playing their next season, I'm still going to see him in, in a Man City jersey or a PSG jersey and just think like, but that's not Barcelona. Like what? This is weird. This is a bizarro world that we live in and I'm not quite sure I'm ready for it. So I'm now hoping yeah. he stays just so I don't have to try to get my head around that one. The move, is it a bit the like when Raul left Real Madrid? Yes. And went to Schalke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like or Frank, Frank yeah. Lampard playing for Man City was a, was a little bit strange um on that oh, on yeah. that on that on that note that's the move not to man city but that's the move that i think will um if, if i had to 
uh, place a bet, <laughs> do a coon trip, eh? um, I would <laughs> say that he ends up playing for NYCFC at some point in his career. Mm-hmm. That's the one. I, I think there's a mechanism there where you get Adidas involved, obviously, with the, the MLS kind of sponsorship there. A Messi is obviously an Adidas athlete. I think maybe he gets a, a, a chunk of NYCFC um, you know, revenue share. Maybe even he gets a Beckham-style franchise deal or something like that. That That's the one. We, we, we've heard a lot about City Football Group talking to Messi, and a lot of people thinking that's about Manchester City. My hunch all along has been that's about NYCFC. That, that's probably further down the line than this summer, I think. I think every top pro aspires to play soccer on a baseball diamond 40 yards from the fans, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what drew David Villa to, yeah. uh, to Yankee Stadium. I mean, there is a hard rock cafe at Yankee Stadium. So that, you know, you have to weigh that up, you know, play in a baseball field and uh, like really big burgers with sparklers so in the of them. The last time I went and saw a game there, it was, I think it was in March. It was miserably cold. I think it was against Montreal. Um, and I went to the hard rock cafe beforehand. So I had some time to kill. I think I paid $26 for a burger. That dog ain't going to hunt. No, thank you, Yankee Stadium. But I'm sure it was like a, an artisanal, like uh, farm to plate burger that hadn't been sitting in the freezer for six months. <laughs> <laughs> sure, if you say so. I'll be happy if it was like cow meat, frankly. <laughs> it was actual pizza rat, unfortunately for you, my friend. <laughs> it was mixed. And on that, on that, is there any more for any more transfers before we head off into the sunset, gents? No, I think that covers it all nope. on my end. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's all carry on with the rest of our lives then. Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always having you on your own show. Uh, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to know that Phil Jones has apparently been added to the Man United senior squad. So we all have that to look forward to. I feel like they just heard that center backs are for sale and they wanted to get one of their own on the market. What a time to be alive. Wonderful yeah. stuff. And uh, Graham, thank you very much once again for your time. Thanks, Ryan. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.